tonight is our final night together for this course at least and um we sort of have uh this is like leftover night where we have a little bit of a lot of stuff to hey there's a horse check it out someone's riding a horse down spring garden that's interesting uh, really oh really they tend to run the wrong direction or Actually, if you go back in the woods, if you follow this path down, there's actually a farm, and they have hor- and they you see them walking through here occasionally. But I don't think I've ever seen them right on the road like that. But uh, anyway, so um, as I was saying, we want to try to touch down on just just these four minor issues. So we're going to look talk a little bit about archaeology, and obviously we're not going to do a major lesson in archaeological research, but at least we'll touch on some stuff to pique your curiosity. I want to talk about miracles. I think miracles are probably often misunderstood, even within the church, like what a miracle actually is. There's certain things that we call miracles that aren't miracles. The deity of Christ, hope I spelt it right tonight. And did Christ stay dead? This is a question that's often asked. So we want to... um, talk about those four things so we'll get right into it so first of all uh keith scoville we're gonna we're gonna start with archaeology does archaeology prove the bible to be true well i would suggest to you that if you read the the bible and look at its archaeological dimensions in other words the things that are stated in the bible compared and contrasted with modern day archaeological research it's going to encourage your faith. It's not going to distract from it. So uh, Keith Scoville says, it's important to realize that archaeological excavations have produced ample evidence to prove unequivocally that the Bible is not a pious forgery. Again, it doesn't prove that it's the word of God, but it proves it's not a forgery. Thus far, no historical statement in the Bible has been proven false on the basis of evidence retrieved through archaeological research. Now, having said that, I personally have watched documentaries where, I don't know if you're familiar with The Naked Archaeologist. Have you ever seen that show? The guy is wearing clothing. But uh, his show is called The Naked Archaeologist. And I think I might have mentioned this in a previous class or maybe in a sermon at some point. I don't remember. But I remember watching his show one time and... uh, he went to a city that, according to the Bible, had been fortified by Solomon. And then he went to another city that, according to the Bible, had been fortified by Solomon. And he looked at the structure of the gates in both cities and observed that they were different. So then, as he's talking through this in this documentary, he makes a statement to the effect, this proves that both these cities couldn't possibly have been made by Solomon. And then he just kind of motors right on with whatever else he was talking about. And I thought, you know, that that's not that's not a valid conclusion to draw that Solomon had to build both gates exactly the same and that that proves that he did it. And if they're not the same, it couldn't possibly be Solomon. And I don't even want to spend a great deal of time sort of pointing out the, the logical fallacy there. I think you sort of get it. But the point being is that there may be people who look at the biblical record and suggest that there are errors, but in actual fact, if you think through them, you're not going to find them in any substantive way. So 
just a little bit of a history, uh, a point from history. Until about 150 years ago, it's true that many of the events of Scripture were being doubted by secular archaeologists because they could not be proven from archaeological finds. Now, let me just make a historical uh, point here. In the 1800s, more or less in the second half of the 1800s, in Germany, mostly in Germany, uh, under the influence of what was culturally known as the kind of the residual effects of the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment sort of a period in history where people were setting aside superstition and religion and they were, tr- they were trying to prove everything that there is based upon scientific and logical inquiry or inquiry. So out of that culture, the theologians of the day began to now look at the Bible through a scientific grid, a particular way of reasoning, rationalism. And out of that came what was known as liberalism, what we now call liberalism. Really, it started on the other side of the Atlantic, in Germany, in the German seminaries, spread it into the churches across the Atlantic, and wreaked havoc at Harvard and Princeton and some of those other great universities. And so, um, in and around that time, when they were challenging the historicity of the Bible, people would say things like, well, the Bible talks about the Hittites, but we've never found anything This is sort of the classic example you'll hear used in a variety of sources. We've never found anything to even substantiate that there was ever a Hittite nation. So, the Bible must be false. And then, of course, we know that they've since discovered a lot of stuff about the Hittites. But the point being is that up until 150 years ago or so, which would put us into the latter part of the 1800s, many of the events of Scripture were doubted by secular archaeologists because they couldn't prove them from archaeological finds. Fortunately, much has changed since then, and many of the biblical accounts have been proven true. Now, hear me clearly. The biblical accounts doesn't mean that people who have proven these to be true believe in the Bible or our God, but that the places, for instance, that are mentioned in the scriptures actually existed because we found them. So many of the biblical accounts have been proven true based on archaeological finds. With time, many more will be Uh, are bound to be unearthed. Obviously, there's a few that probably never will be discovered, like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's probably under the Dead Sea or has been completely wiped out. But if you go to Israel, there are all kinds of digs and excavations that just continue to prove the historicity of Scripture. Again, historically, the historical claims. So here's just some, and I... I, uh, there's just eight that are written in your notes. Obviously, we're just sort of summarizing some things here, but hopefully some of these will encourage you. Uh, names of Israelite kings found in Egyptian on Egyptian walls. Uh, there was obviously some back and forth trade and interaction between uh, the Egyptians and the Israelis. Now, I don't know, we don't know if this is factual or not, but I remember a year or so ago even reading an article that, uh, and you could look it up yourself because I probably have the details wrong. This is from about a year ago, but uh, there was a tomb actually found 
near the Great Pyramids, and they think it might be the man that we know as Joseph's tomb. And there's actually a picture on Wikipedia of, of this uh, mummy, of Joseph, and they point at the fact that his, his, his face is a different structure than the Egyptians of the day, and apparently there's some inscriptions and some evidence that this was someone who may be the man that we know as Joseph. So, again, we don't know that, know that for sure, but it wouldn't surprise us because the Bible talks about a man named uh, Joseph that was in pretty tight with the Pharaoh, right? And then we have uh, more than 25,000 sites, and this this is probably information that's 7 or 8 or maybe even 10 years old now, showing some connection to biblical events that have been uncovered. Uh, these finds have been dated to have occurred th through, uh, through during biblical times through broken pottery, inscriptions, inscribed stones, copies of lists that date back to 2000 BC, on and on and on and on and on. Lots of, lots of stuff uh, being dug up. Uh, biblical history has been proven to take to have taken place when writing was well established. So there have been times in human human history where people have said, well, they weren't writing at the time of, let's say, Abraham. And then they start finding inscriptions from the time of Abraham from different cultures and languages. Oh, okay, well, maybe they actually were a little more advanced than we thought they were. Uh, other kingdoms have shown that they had much of the technology that Israel had in the scripture, giving further proof that biblical times are not fairy tales. In fact, many of the other nations were more advanced than the Israelites. Can you think of one in one particular area? Let's say the time of the kings. Joe Blow, the Israelite, needs a sickle. Where does he go? No, he doesn't have to go that far. He goes to the Philistines. Remember, they were the guys that had, they were ahead of the Israelis in terms of their ability to work with metal. So there's different accounts in the Bible of them having to go down and have a, a piece of equipment fixed. So there was trade and interaction. They weren't always fighting each other. Sometimes they were actually getting along okay. So that's just an example of where the Philistines were actually a little bit ahead of the, the Jews. And the point being is that sometimes when people look at some of the descriptions of things the Jews were doing at a certain time in history, they might say, well, civilization really wasn't that advanced. And then they find another civilization that was more advanced. Say, so, okay, well, maybe they had some stuff going on there as well. Other kingdoms, uh, so I guess I covered five. Six, the names of kings recorded in Daniel have proven to be true. Previously, they were thought to be false. So we've got a number of kings. We have uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have uh, Darius. We have Cyrus. A number of different kings that are recorded in, in uh, the exile, Daniel right through into Ezra. And we know these are actually historical figures. In the New Testament, partial copies of the Bible date back as far as 130 A. D. Uh, coins provide further evidence that the dates supplied in the New Testament are accurate. So there's bucket loads of coins that they dig up. And these coins have inscriptions on them and faces of different military leaders or political leaders. And so all of that kind of stuff sort of helps to validate uh, the historicity of the Bible. Again, very brief, but um, uh, true stuff. 
By the way, I would encourage you, if you ever get a chance, um, one, one great resource that I have in my library, I've had in my library probably for 20 years, is called the NIV uh, Atlas of the Bible. And it's got maps and all that kind of good stuff in it, but it also has some really neat write-ups about some of the archaeological background to different periods of time within Israel. And if you're ever teaching a lesson or you just kind of want to find out a little bit more about a particular period of time, having a nice, colored, well-written resource like that in your library is, is an indispensable tool. And the great thing is it's not the kind of thing that goes out of date or out of style. The information in there is for keeps. So the NIV produces a good one, a good atlas of the Bible that is worth, uh, worth considering adding to your library. So any questions or comments then about archaeological finds or information? Um, I'm not an archaeologist per se, but I have an interest in it a little bit. And I really enjoyed going to Israel three or four years back and seeing the tells and the ruins and all the stories surrounding it. And I remember uh, back in seminary, I was writing a paper on Arad, and the, there was, which was a Canaanite city in, um, in the Negev that was wiped up by the Israelites. And, uh, and then going there and looking at this place and saying, I, I wrote about this like 15 years ago, and wow, this is cool. And there's like 30 layers of civilization on this one tell. The, the, town kept being wiped out and rebuilt and wiped out and rebuilt and wiped out and rebuilt. So it's just kind of cool seeing stuff like that. Uh, and there's lots of other, uh, obviously, events that um, uh, you could validate to be true just by a study tour or, uh, to, uh, to Israel. Any other questions or comments or information that you've come across that might be helpful for the class? Well, I think that's really modern language from the best of my understanding. I mean, that's kind of what we call it now. I don't know if they would have been... Oh, I see. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Israelis, Israelites. Nowadays, you would call them Israelis. Israelites is kind of King Jamesy sounding, at least. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. You would generally use the language Israeli today, but uh, I guess I just, you know, I use Jews or Israelis or Israelites or you know, they're actually also Palestinians because Palestine. I remember preaching a sermon one time and using the word Palestine, and someone came up to me after and got really upset with me. They were Jewish, Christian, but Jewish, and I said, "Well, it's, it's kind of biblical language. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a political statement, but." You can refer to that part of the world that way, too, at least if you... Uh, again, I know it's politically loaded in the last 40 or 50 years, but it's, it's, not, it's not language I made up, right? So, Jews, by the way, is, is more... Uh, it's not really all that accurate because that's more from Judah, and that's only one of 12 tribes. So, Okay, let's talk about miracles. So we have... All kinds of miracles recorded in the Bible, and people may challenge you on that. And generally, they'll challenge you from the perspective of, well, we just don't see miracles, or miracles contradict the laws of science, or miracles contradict logic, or 
people, it's almost like uh, they will tease you. You believe in miracles. Like, really? Do you have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian? So when it comes to miracles, a few things. We got swallowing of the five th- uh, of, of Jonah. We got the swallowing of the 5,000. We got lots of other, uh, what did I say? The swallowing of the 5,000? The, sw- the swallowing of Jonah, the feeding of the 5,000. It could have happened, I suppose. Yeah, that's a big fish story. So generally people are going to say, well, those are just quaint stories or they're scientifically irrational. Those are sort of the two major pushbacks you're going to get to the miracle stories of the Bible. Now, um, one there's a few ways of sort of looking at this and responding to this. One is to, again, think of Christianity and I don't want you to overuse this image, but think of Christianity in terms of a box. So within that box, or you could call them boundaries, that would be fine too, is um, is our theology, so what the content of our faith. It's our apologetics, the things that we bring to the table to defend our faith. There's ethical dimensions, the practice of the Christian faith, everything that sort of has to do with the Christian faith, properly understood, okay, assuming that within that box you've properly understood stuff. Obviously, uh, people can misunderstood stu- uh, un- misunderstand certain aspects of, of the Christian faith, and then it's outside of the box. But let's assume for a moment that we can sort of properly understand the Bible, 90% of it, and how to apply it, 90% of it, and how to defend it, 90% of it, leaving some leeway for some error. Now, if you think about this box, the box is a coherent system that's livable, it's defensible, it's, it's not irrational, certain parts of it are super rational, but it, it works. Like it, Within the boundaries of Christianity, there's, there's no contradictions. There's no contradiction between this doctrine and this doctrine, or this doctrine and this practice, or this practice, and you know, this idea about God. Right? It, it fits together, it's a coherent system. So with that in mind, sometimes uh, one needs to understand that when a person attacks the miracle stories of the Bible, really what it is, is it's not so much that they're looking for proof, but that they don't understand something within that box, and that is our view of God. So sometimes instead of going into apologetics and saying, well, I've got to come up with proof to prove that this miracle happened, what we actually got to go back and do is do some better theology and explain to them, well, actually, within the Christian system, here is how we understand God. And that God actually can break outside of natural law, and that God can override his own systems that he set up in the physical universe, and so forth and so on. So the point being is that sometimes people reject miracles, or I would suggest you virtually always do, knowingly or unknowingly, because they have a weak view of God. They don't necessarily understand the Christian God. So then one might also say that another uh, misunderstanding about God that sort of flows from this is that you could say to a person, well, well, our God, by definition, whether you accept him or not, within the box, within the boundaries of Christian theology and ethics and apologetics, is actually a God that's not bound by natural law. He does create natural law, and it would appear, for the most part, honors natural law, but he is not bound by natural law. Natural law is normative. That's not, it's natural 
law because that's normally how things happen. Normally, you plant an acorn and an oak tree grows. But I suppose if God wanted to, a pine tree could grow out of the acorn. So God normally allows natural law to take its place. But the point being is that by definition, God is not bound to it. He can override it. He can work outside of it. So what really then is a miracle? Well, a miracle really is an act of God. Now, listen to this carefully. Changing or interrupting things. So some miracles could have natural explanation. One could say, well, when he parted the Red Sea, maybe that was just the wind blowing the water aside. So I guess that's possible. Maybe God used natural law to open the Red Sea, right? I mean, he could have. It still would have been initiated by his supernatural powers. But he could have actually used natural laws, the presence of wind to move things, as the mechanism to move the water, I suppose. And whether he did or didn't doesn't really matter to me too much. I'm just using that as an illustration. Or he could perform a a miraculous act by superseding natural law. So maybe a man is blind. Maybe he literally doesn't have eyeballs and God gives him some or Jesus gives him some. And of course, that would be to go beyond or to step outside of natural law. You don't just grow eyeballs like that. That's not how it works. So uh, God's miracles then, one could say, are not simply a matter of uncivilized people being duped into thinking that something is a miracle when it when it actually happens all the time. As in the case of maybe a tribe out in Papua New Guinea that sees a airplane fly overhead and has never seen one before and says, oh, look, there's a big silver bird. Well, that would just be an, an interpretational issue. They think it's miraculous, but really it's something that we are aware is within the boundaries of natural law because we built airplanes and based upon the shape of the wing, they get lift and they can fly over jungles. But that the people of God throughout history have understood that their God can actually step outside of natural law and do what's called the miraculous. So let me give you a a common example of this. Oftentimes, Christians will use the word miracle inaccurately. And here's probably the the greatest example of this, and you, you understand the heart and the motive, but the illustration still stands, and that is when a baby is born, what do we say? It's a miracle. No, it's not. Okay? It's not a miracle. When a man and a woman do certain things, babies come about. And that's actually part of natural law. It's awesome, of course, when a baby's born. And it's not so bad making babies either. But in actual fact, that's part of the natural laws that God has established. So it doesn't qualify as a miracle. But you, you see what I'm saying? Sometimes we look at things that are just really awesome. We say, that's a miracle. No, it's not. It's natural law. A miracle would be when a virgin has a baby. Like Jesus. That's a miracle. It's a miracle because by definition, it's outside of natural law. So when we talk about miracles, I suppose in-house, it's okay for us to be a little sloppy and say, isn't it a miracle that this little baby's here? But if we're actually defending our faith or we're trying to represent our faith in the public sphere, we need to make sure that when we talk about miracles, we're talking about things that supersede or go beyond natural law and that God is the one that is the mechanism that brings that about or allows that to happen through his supernatural powers and abilities.
So then one could say that, in a sense, miracles do not conflict with natural law. Natural laws are simply generalizations about ordinary events which are caused by God. The laws are not God themselves. So if there is a, a God within the box, and that God is described as sovereign and all-powerful and the creator, then that God can choose to step outside of his natural processes and do certain things without, nece without necessarily eradicating natural law. So miracles then are also by definition an act within creation because it's creation that's governed by natural laws. Presumably heaven isn't governed by natural laws or at least not by natural laws as we think of them on earth because it's a supernatural realm. But within creation, miracles are an act and an act of supernatural power in the bi biblical account always has a clear purpose and reason attached to them. They're not there just for entertainment purposes. So there is a wow factor obviously attached to miracles, but they're not just there to make you say, wow. They're usually to prophesy an event or to confirm a prophecy or to uh, reveal the supernatural presence of God to an unbeliever or something like that. They're not just there so people would say, wow, God performs miracles and go on their merry way. There's a purpose attached to them. So they confirm prophecy in Jesus' power, for instance. Now, some people have asked, well, why, why not now? Now, let's be careful here. We're not suggesting that we all assume that there's no such thing as any miracles today. But if you look at the biblical record, and you're reading like Matthew, and then you read Mark, and then Luke, and then John, and then you jump over to 1 Corinthians, you're like, oh, man, there's like miracle one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Why are we not seeing these kinds of things today? Well, there's a couple of responses. First of all, just because you're reading episodes back to back to back to back doesn't mean they're happening like every single day in front of the same people. Like these, you're, you're, you're reading a few thousand years of human history crammed into one book. And so you may be reading a whole bunch of events or encounters, but they could, there could be six months, there could be 60 years, there could be 600 years between one miracle you're reading in one part of the Bible and a miracle you're reading in another part of the Bible. So I think we have to be careful in, in sort of getting this idea that in the New Testament world, wouldn't it be cool to be in the New Testament world because like miracles were happening like every single day? I, I don't think they necessarily were, although it's certainly true that during Jesus' three years of public ministry, for instance, those that were hanging out with him would have seen a whole lot more than probably all of us and our grandparents and our kids and our grandchildren will see in terms of miracles in our lifetime. So just throwing that out, because sometimes we we read the Bible sort of flat and we think, well, what's said in chapter four must be like 15 minutes before what's being said in chapter five. And it may not be the case. It could be a substantial amount of time there. So um, the, there's a few other theological or historical reasons, though, why it would seem that maybe God doesn't perform as many obvious miracles in his church as, let's say, he did during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, to just use that as, uh, as an example. Go ahead.
My simple response is you've got to read the title of the course, and it's Defending Biblical Christianity in the Canadian Context. So what I mean by that is that in I, I understand what you're saying, and I agree with what you're saying, and there's probably a lot of things that could be said about why God appears to be doing a lot more miracles in second and third world countries or countries where there's not access to the Bible. But in the Canadian context, probably because of the emphasis on rationalism, probably because the church is established, probably because there's lots of resources. It doesn't appear as if God is doing the same amount of miracles as he's doing, let's say, during Jesus' earthly ministry. So uh, I think I'm limiting my remarks and saying, why not now? What I mean now, I'm talking about in the Canadian context, which is sort of the, the direction that this course is taking, right? So... I wouldn't want you to come out of here thinking that Aaron Rock is an old conservative Big B Baptist that doesn't believe God is doing miracles anymore. But I've been around for 41 years and I ain't seen a whole lot. So the question is why? Why why in the last at least number of decades in our culture and world are we not seeing like what we would see in the Gospel of Luke, for instance? And I have some ideas as to why that might be the case that uh, don't in any way, shape, or form minimize the power or ability of God or minimize our faith in this culture and in this time. So I want to take you to Luke 16.31. In Luke 16.31, Jesus says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this is obviously taking place during a period of time where Jesus is doing miracles. I understand that. But what Jesus seems to be saying is, look, if you already have the truth, and it's available to you, like it is, for instance, in the Canadian context, like, why should I bother showing up and wowing you with miracles when you're not willing to read the truth, the prophets, what's already been revealed to you? You're, you're blowing that off. Now, perhaps the reason why God seems to do miracles in the third world, let's say, maybe not all third world countries, but the th- many third world countries, is because they haven't heard anything yet, at least some of them. I mean, they haven't heard what he calls Moses and the prophets yet. I mean, this is like raw territory. You know, there may be no Bibles, no seminaries, no churches in some of these contexts, some village out in the middle of Nowheresville, Papua New Guinea. And these people have been cut off from divine revelation for centuries. And a missionary goes in and everyone's surprised that there's signs and wonders and miracles taking place. Well, I'm just surmising, of course, but it might be because these people have heard nothing up to that point in time. And just like when Jesus came to his people in the New Testament, there's a whole boatload of miracles being done because he's establishing something that they hadn't experienced before. So, and you think about, 
think about it in our context too. Like I, I just, I, I'm just guessing here, but I, I would suspect that if you know, we posted a sign on the street and said, if you come here at a certain time and a certain day, and God has sent us a letter, let's let's assume for a moment He did, and He's going to show up and He's going to raise someone from the dead. That some people might come just to see what it's like. Many people wouldn't bother coming because they assume at the beginning God can't do that. Those that do come are going to go and explain it away some other way anyway. Right? Because the point being is if they've already rejected the truth that they have, like how is a miracle really going to convince someone who has a, a hard heart toward the things of God? So I don't think it should disturb us or bother us that in the Canadian context where we have access to so many resources that it doesn't appear that God is wasting his time performing a lot of miracles to convince people because the stuff he's already revealed to him to them hasn't convinced them thus far. So one could also say then from another angle that it, in terms of... Uh, our faith being real, really we don't need miracles now because we have accurate records of the miracles that happened in the past. So if you are a person of faith and you've encountered God and you believe that the Bible is the word of God, it's not illogical to say, well, I don't, I don't need to have a miracle happen in my life because I believe the word of God and I believe that it says that certain miracles took place and I'm okay with that. And on the other hand, if someone says, well, I, I don't believe until I see a miracle, then that's also an indication that they don't have the measure of faith in, this, in the miracles that are recorded in the scriptures, that those that would be okay to live their entire lives and never see someone raised from the dead, for instance, because they believe the Bible to be true. So those are two things that, I don't know if you've thought about that before, but they're two things that I think are are worth considering and in no way shape or form do they minimize God's ability to do what God wants but they they explain perhaps in some way shape or form why it would appear that in the Canadian context last few generations there doesn't seem to be the kind of emphasis on breaking natural laws as there would have been during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, questions or comments? Because I'm suspicious that this might open a can of worms. Jill. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever pointed out that inconsistency? Because it's probably a it's probably a it's probably not a bad strategy to do so. Yeah, I I would agree. I think I think it's worth pointing out. I think it's a 
it's it's a valid argument, I guess, that you could present to someone who's a theist. Oh, they just hadn't heard it? They had never heard it before. Oh. They threw the body into the tomb. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, we, we all know, we all know, we all know Daniel and the lion's den, but that's sort of a rare one. Right? So if you've heard it enough, it's maybe easier to believe than... Could be. Yeah, or someone who's maybe coming to faith at the age of 35, raised knowingly or unknowingly in a rationalistic world. That's the way they process truth. That's part of their worldview. They, they don't, they're not even aware of the fact that much of human history didn't process truth through that venue to the degree that we do. And you, you hear a miracle. Is that really? Yeah. I think I think it's a good point, though. I suppose if you if you're dealing with a theist who, for some reason, challenges the miracles of the Bible, but accepts the miracle of creation, I, then again, I don't even know if creation's a miracle per se, because in creating, he's establishing natural laws, so he's not really breaking natural laws. But the point being, it's pretty incredible. And if you can accept that, then to accept violations of natural law within creation by God to prove a point or validate a prophecy is not that much of a stretch. Yeah. David? Uh, I come from the third world. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I don't think about Venezuela. Okay? There are, even in TV, commercials, comes to the service this weekend, is a healing service. <coughs> 500 people go there for this healing they, but they have to buy the Jerusalem water or something like that yeah, so yeah. they put water and oh and healing uh, I'm confused well I'm, I'm yeah after a few months sure the guy is in jail for <laughs> the money yeah so, yeah sure I understand that so um, anything in the Bible that is good and right and true can be polluted or twisted or whatnot. So, do we believe in pro that? Do, does the Bible talk about prophecy? Yes, but it also talks within the Bible about false prophets, right? Does it talk about miracle workers? Yes, but it also talks about false or at least improperly motivated miracle workers. What was it? The seven sons of Sceva? What were they doing? Going around? casting out demons now it's not like god sort of threw them under the bus because they were actually getting some traction but maybe there was some improper motives or whatnot there so the, but uh we could say that there's prophecy there's false prophecy there are uh um people that help people for good reasons and bad reasons uh, there are people that call for people to give money for good reasons and bad reasons. So 
it's not really any different to say there's people that could claim to perform miracles for good reasons and bad reasons. Same as everything else in Christianity. Anything in Christianity can be abused and misused. So you're going to have people that, some of whom are doing it because they have a strong theological conviction, but there's some people that are doing it because they're snaky and they're just trying to take advantage of people and people are vulnerable. And, and then there's other people that are doing it for reasons that we interpret to be snaky, but maybe they're still convinced that they're doing it right. But we're like, I don't know, like this is something that doesn't sound right about that. So you got, you got lots of anecdotal examples of people who are selling the little vials of water or the piece of sackcloth that they've prayed in, sweated on, and all this kind of stuff. And if you send, yeah, and it's, it's obviously on TV, it's almost always connected with money. Um, I mean, I want to be careful not to suggest that every person who claims to be a miracle worker is a fraud, but it, it, I mean, unfortunately, it seems to be a, a prevalent occupation, at least on television. And different periods of time, I mean, in the 70s and 80s, my perception is is that it was maybe even more common than it is now. So, I mean, maybe it'll maybe it's out of vogue, but it'll come back. Who knows? Right? So we do have to be careful. Joy? You know, in the list of gifts, it includes healing. Do you believe that healing is a gift today, or have you ever known anyone with a gift of healing? Um, I, I don't, I believe that healing uh, can happen that God supernaturally heals and that God may choose to supernaturally heal through the touch or the words or the presence of a human being. I wouldn't die for this, but if I were to kind of give you an equation, let's say a 70-30 equation, I would be more inclined to say that there's, there aren't individual people that have the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues, but that those gifts are tied to the apostles or their close associates. So I would lean in that direction without leading so strong I fall over. I've heard lots of stories like that too. I've, I've also known people who, um, I, I know of a fellow. I'm not going to say he's a friend, and he's probably not even quite an acquaintance. But I've met him a few times. He, he came to our church many, many years ago, uh, for one Sunday, and he said that he was going to see uh, Benny Hinn to have his severely disabled child healed that week. And that child's still disabled. I don't know how that affected his faith, but when he said it, my antennas went up, and I felt very uncomfortable. And um, you know, I do feel very, very uncomfortable with people like that. But I want to allow for a sliver of room that I might be wrong, as well. So I don't want to be arrogant and prideful about it. But it just seems to me, if you're talking about the supernatural gifts, that the supernatural gifts. <coughs> seem to be tied to the apostolic gifts. And being that we don't have any apostles today, then those supernatural gifts don't seem to be at least normative. So that's my understanding of those things. But in doing so, in saying that, I wouldn't want you to think that I am 
downplaying or denying the ability of God to gift someone those abilities in a temporary way. I guess if God wanted to do that, it's up to him. It's not up to me. But it doesn't seem to be the normative way of doing things today. We have a closed canon. We have, we do have all the revelation that we need. It's gotten the church along fairly well for 2,000 years when we've obeyed it. We don't need more prophecy. We don't need more special revelation to make it through the day. We don't need or require more miracles to be people of faith. So um, if we don't experience those things in our lifetime, it shouldn't concern us. Uh, it shouldn't rock our faith. And at the same time, I think we should leave the door open a little bit that God may choose to still work in those ways, but that it probably is not going to be the normative way that God works. So, Glenn? Well, theologically, I disagree with it because I think that the marks of the apostles are those that have seen the risen Christ, those that have a special commissioning from God to bind the church to revelatory truth. So this goes beyond preaching or policing the scriptures. This this goes to the issue of healing, casting out demons, binding people to revelatory truth. Like Paul, apostle, done writing letters to the churches. Um, now, so in, in terms of a, a strict biblical uh, definition of apostle, um, once the apostles died, the church didn't recognize any other apostles. They were never replaced. So, come two hundred, nobody's or one hundred, nobody's being called apostle anywhere. Two hundred. 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, 900, 80, and on and on and on and on. Up into the 1800s, there's nobody being called apostle. The church understood that the apostles were those that had followed Christ, they were specially commissioned by Christ, or um, you know, men, men like Barnabas that probably had some affiliation or association with Christ that were so closely tied to let's say, Paul, that he was called an apostle. He might have been one of the other followers of Christ outside of the Twelve. We don't know. And the church always understood that the apostles then had this special status that was beyond pastors and elders and deacons and teachers and that kind of thing. And then we have, in the 1800s, um, a what would, what would be called a revival movement out of places like... A, the Azusa Street Revival, where um, started mostly with women, uh, claimed to be prophetesses, and <clears throat> claimed that the events that are recorded in Joel 2 weren't really what happened in Acts 2, but were for today. And you have sort of a, a movement that's grown over the last 150 years out of that that basically 
would affirm the office of apostle, prophets, and so forth and so on. Uh, I don't agree with that or believe in that. I, I want to be careful because I, I I don't think that everyone who... I would never want you to think that if a person claims to be an apostle that I somehow think of them as a bad person or an ill-motivated person. It's also possible that they may use the word apostle in a way that I'm not fully understanding. In other words, they may have redefined the term to mean someone who's like a pastor of pastors, which historically we would have called a bishop. But I would feel I would feel quite comfortable challenging someone if they were in my presence and if I had the opportunity to do so. If they said, "Well, I'm an I'm an apostle on par with Paul, or I'm an apostle on par with you know, Peter, or someone like that," so um, I don't get all that worked up about people using. Let me put it this way: just because someone says they're an apostle doesn't change my biblical understanding about what an apostle is. I, my mind immediately goes in the direction of well, why do you consider yourself an apostle? Like, what's the basis of that? And um, so that's kind of my, hopefully that's a satisfactory answer. I'm trying to be, I'm try, trying to be charitable. This isn't like a, a, a Maple Leaf story, is it? Okay. Okay. Oh, Montreal story. Okay. Hang on. We had a pile up or some of that, and my uh, father got trampled down, and he broke his spine, and his spine was like this. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was 80 years ago. And he was a year in the hospital. And just through the ridge of uh, when, when the Catholic, French, Polish, and Russian believe in Father uh, Andre, I don't know if you ever heard of him. to my father's room and we prayed over him and some of that and within a year my father was walking oh yeah, yeah. and you know you think that the spine would be uh, infected by it or things like that yeah but he raised four children uh, five children and, yeah. and then uh, Robert and Audrey he's uh, she go to uh, uh, St. Joseph Cathedral in Montreal Well, I think all of us probably could point to many, many, like many times in our lives when we may may have expected someone to die or someone not to recover, and, and we prayed, and they were healed. And the, the seculars might say, well, it was just good medicine, but we would say, well, I think God had something to do with that. and um, That's fine, I think. Sure. Yeah. Dave. 
<laughs> Apologeticsing. Okay, that's a new word. You can write that one down. I don't know how to spell it. Jim could probably help us with that. But uh, <laughs> um, anybody who believes in salvation by grace through faith alone, in the triunity of God, the virgin birth, the second coming, the Bible as the word of God, um, is a Christian. And so if someone who says, well, I'm charismatic, also believes in those fundamentals, they are by definition a Christian. So a person is not a Christian if they deny the fundamentals or have not put their faith in the fundamentals of the faith. So obviously there are, I mean, we're all aware of the fact that we live in an incredibly pluralistic world in terms of religious perspectives and worldviews, but Christianity is pretty diverse too. And the first question is, like, do you believe in the fundamentals or what we call the cardinal verities of the Christian faith? If somebody, on, in a, if somebody in one church says, well, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that tongues existed in the New Testament, but really we're just talking King James language there. Tongues are languages, and they're listed out by ethnic group in the book of Acts. And they appear to be the abilities God gave to specific people to speak a language they had never before learned for evangelistic purposes. But that that's strictly New Testament. And another person says, no, I think that's still today. And another person says, oh, I think it's ecstatic utterances from angels. Well, I mean, not everybody's right, but it doesn't rock my world. I think it probably used to. Um, maybe one of the things that helped me to overcome that is my own mother's charismatic. And pretty sure my mom's saved. So my mom was here at church on Sunday. Some of you know my mom. So <clears throat> uh, I know people that are charismatic. I, I don't agree with the charismatic movement. If someone actually wanted to sit down and have a theological conversation with me about it, I think I would, I could be fairly convincing. Uh, but oftentimes when people have had an experience, they're really not open to being convinced. They've had the experience. The experience validates their beliefs, and they're not open to change. So when I talk to charismatic people, if they believe in the cardinal verities, they'd say, okay, you and I are both believers, so let's just get that out of the way. We're going to treat each other charitably and graciously. Now let's talk about the issues. Let's explore the biblical texts about glossa, tongues. Let's look at what's being said there. As best as we can, let's try to understand what was going on in the New Testament world. Let's look at 1 Corinthians. Let's wrestle with Paul's discussions about maturity and seeing in a glass dimly and all that kind of stuff. And let's try to figure out, is that eschatological or is that more apostolic? And let's work through this and arrive at a conclusion as best as we can about whether that's something we should be practicing today or not. But if the person says, no, I've had the experience, the experience validates my beliefs, I'm not open to dialogue, well then, fine. It doesn't keep me awake at night. I disagree with it. I can tell you a story. My, my own grandmother told me once that she started speaking in tongues shortly after my grandfather died. And later, she told me that as she, she stopped, as she processed that, she became increasingly convinced that she was talked into it because she was in a moment of 
emotional grief. She needed some way that she never learned to express her angst and her pain. A relative came along and had a conversation with her about that, and she tried to do it, but later she felt that it wasn't authentic, that it was a learned experience. And that shouldn't bother us. That shouldn't be a surprise either, because you are, I hope, I hope, aware that there are groups outside of Christianity that claim to speak in tongues, and we wouldn't validate their experience as being legitimate. So it shouldn't surprise us then that there may be some who are talked into certain, a certain expression of faith or a certain behavior that may or may not be biblical, or may or not be from God. And just one further comment to that, <clears throat> just to sort of, you know, make sure we're all being humble here. There's probably a lot of aspects of our Christianity that are learned. And as we continue to read the Bible, we sort through those. We may say, you know what? I used to be really convicted about this, but I realize now it's not conviction. It's just I was told it so many times that I believed it to be true. Anybody had an experience like that? If you're told the same thing enough, convincingly, over and over and over and over again, you believe it to be true, but then maybe you're reading your Bible one day and you realize that just because that's what your Sunday school teacher told you. So <clears throat> I used to think dancing was a sin. And I was deeply convicted and convinced that dancing was a sin. Christians don't dance. Well, I've been... I've been... I've been, I've been cured of that. Right now, Dale is laughing because I think I already told you that once, right? Oh, <laughs> now obviously there's forms of dancing that are immoral, but uh, you're told the same thing enough, you believe it to be true. So we have to look at our expressions of Christianity. Really ask ourselves: Is this? Is this really like strictly biblical or is it more based upon the church that I was raised in? And I'm sure we could list many, many other examples along those lines. So I, I, if you were to ask me, like, if, do you th if you don't believe in the charismatic movement, that what's going on? Well, my best guess, again, charitably, humbly, would be to say it's learned behavior. Um, well, if you were to ask me it, it, the question a different way and say, like, why does it matter? Like, what would be my concerns about it? I'd probably be able to answer your question a little better. So could I approach it from that angle? Okay. So um, one of my concerns is that in certain forms of the charismatic movement, there's a claim to still be hearing special revelation from God now, think about that for a moment. If you're hearing special revelation from God, now I believe in illumination, I believe in conviction, I believe that God can you know, speak in a still, small voice, guide us and direct us. In terms of the application of Scripture, or how we're supposed to live it out, or how we're supposed to put it into practice, but there are, there are certain folks within the charismatic movement that claim to be receiving revelation from God, like on par with this. And, and that concerns me because, 
I mean, you get into a lot of questions. What if what you're receiving is contradictory to this? Or how do we validate that? Like, how do we know? So if I'm a preacher and I'm like, I heard, I heard from God. And let's say you trust me, you believe me, you've known me for a while. And, and I'm saying, you know, this is what God told me to tell you. And it's binding revelation. Well, I could, I could mess up your life pretty quickly if what I'm saying is in fact discovered to not have been from God. So one of my concerns is, is about re revelation because in the charismatic movement there's a heavy emphasis on revelation from God. Granted, some of it is just an affirmation of what we've already heard. And the question would be then why do we need it? But that aside, the other aspect would be if, if the revelation that you're receiving from God is actually on par with Scripture, then then it's sort of a free-for-all as to what's true or what what is authoritative in the life of the church. Now, I can tell you this, that historically, one of the things that some charismatics have done to try to explain this is they've said, well, there's first-class revelation, there's second-class revelation. So God speaks today just like he speaks as clearly and as authoritatively as he did to Paul. But that which is in the Bible is first-class revelation and anything else is second class. So the second class stuff is always subservient to the first class. Well, that doesn't explain the issue because if God speaks, God speaks. If he speaks to Paul or if he speaks directly to me, like think about it, God is speaking to Paul. God is speaking to me. It's convenient to say first class, second class to try to guard the sacredness of scripture but also explain this experience. But there's no such thing as first class, second class from God. It's equally authoritative, right? So that it doesn't it doesn't help to create two different categories. It means nothing, is what I'm saying. Because if God speaks, if God is speaking, there's no first, second class. It's just true. The second thing is <clears throat> is I guess just to say that you don't want to encourage someone to have an experience with God that may not be an experience with God and in fact be discovered to be something else. Nor do you want people to live lives where their their faith is in, sense, in, in a sense weakened because they're always needing a miracle or a, another word or another affirmation or another confirmation. What that does is, at least on a subconscious level, it minimizes this. And it says, well, I guess this isn't enough. I guess I can't make it through my day without a special word from God. I guess I'm not sure I can really believe in God unless he gives me a miracle in my life. So what it can do is it, in a sense, over time it begins to minimize the word of God and we become less and less people of the book and more and more people of an experience that may or may not be true. And then the, the final point I'll just make is there, there has been, as Davis mentioned, evidence of those that have just gone too far with it. You know, and everything's a miracle and... They can heal you, and they're just giving people a lot of false hope. You know, that if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. Well, where's that in the Bible? Because I know a lot of people with a whole lot of faith, and they still die. In fact, the statistics on that are pretty impressive. We all do. So you can give people, you can give people a false hope. You can make people feel that somehow their faith is deficient because they didn't have enough faith or they didn't believe or they didn't reach out and grab what God has offered to them and really rob them of a biblical faith, which is to walk by faith and not by sight. So 
Some of you will live your whole life and you'll never see anything to validate your faith in terms of like seeing something that's outside of natural law or God shows up in the room and reveals himself to you in bodily form. You live your whole life by that. Well, that doesn't mean your faith is deficient. You're walking by faith. You, you've chosen to believe this book, and you're okay with that. So those are, those are some things that come to my mind that, that um, can concern me. I, I would like to make one sociological comment, and I think Trevor has a question. This is just my opinion, okay? Just my thoughts rattling around. I could be wrong on this. But I have thought to myself over the years, I wonder why at certain points in, uh, let's say the last hundred years, there, there, ha there does seem to be a greater emphasis on some of this, the miraculous, a greater need for it than at other times. And I think, again, just my opinion, could be wrong, it's not gospel truth. I think it's because sometimes the church gets pretty stale, wrongly so. People get sick of it. So the pendulum swings. And people are like, I'm just tired of not having any way to physically or verbally or emotionally express my faith. And I'm just feeling dry. And so someone comes along and says, well, I... I can, I can provide that for you in this denomination or this church. And there's an attraction to it. And out of that uh, belief, maybe this will help, if you never thought about this before, maybe that will help you to understand why when I planted this church, I wanted to make sure that people got both. That people had the opportunity to consider truth, to be taught clearly, to study theology, to experience biblical preaching, but also to engage in a worship that's dynamic and passionate, where there's a measure of freedom and enthusiasm attached to it. So, Trevor? Yeah, I think one of the fundamental ones is that it's a great reminder to those that aren't charismatic that we actually have an experiential encounter with God that is part of our faith. That my encounter with God is far more than correct. It, it isn't not this, but it's far more than correct doctrine, correct belief, correct liturgy. That there is an experiential dimension to my relationship with God just as there's an experiential dimension to my relationship with any other being. So, you know, on one hand, <clears throat> like, wouldn't it be weird if our relationships with one another were more like what some Christians have with God? And it's just a list of descriptions. He's holy, he's just, he's pure, he's perfect, he's the Savior, on and on and on and on. And whenever we, t whenever we uh, let's say, described our relationship with someone else to another person, we just spouted off a list of orthodox statements about that person's character. Uh, that would seem a little weird. 
Like you would think that if you're really having a relationship with someone, there would be stories you would tell, humorous stories or pains you've went through, conflicts you've overcome, a little bit of biography, right? And sometimes I think in the Christianity of my youth, there was an emphasis on biblical teaching and and I'm not suggesting that the people that taught me didn't have a relationship with God, but sometimes you sort of wondered whether it was more about being right and more about having the correct doctrine than actually helping people to discover what it meant to walk with God. And so for me, I think it it took me, I would say I was probably into my 30s before I felt that I had really encountered God in an up-close personal way and could commune with him. And I, I mean, I'm still learning what that means and looks like. But uh, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit. What happened to, what happened to me is I was uh, teaching at a Bible college, and I was asked to teach a course on spiritual formation. And my first question to the dean was, what is spiritual formation? Because I'd never taken a course like that. I didn't even know what that meant. So he said, well, well, basically a course on spiritual formation is about helping people to encounter God and understand what it means to walk with God and uh, to, obviously I, I needed to explore like different views than Christianity, but what that looked like. So I had to look at like the monastic movement and I had to look at the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Catholics and all, all different groups and how they sort of described a relationship with God and intimacy with God and adventure with God. And I agreed to teach the course primarily because I wanted to figure some of that out myself. And through that experience, probably for the next three or four years, that was sort of the dominant, uh, probably the the dominant theological issue that I wrestled with. And, and, and out of that, whether you like the book or not, is why I wrote Divine Hydration a number of years later. Divine Hydration is just my teaching notes put into chapters. Because in that process, I wanted to try to understand in a deeper way what it meant to really walk with God. And again, I'm not suggesting to you that I have the greatest relationship with God ever, because I don't. But I think I learned a lot more through that study and that in, in, in those experiences than I had before. So in a nutshell, I think the charismatic movement, for me personally, uh, the greatest benefit of it is that it has reminded me that humanity was meant to walk with God and not just know them on paper. So, yeah. Yeah. That's hyperbole. And... Uh, it's it's hyperbole with a point attached. I mean, Jesus is wanting us to go there saying, look, if you actually have faith, incredible things can happen. But it's not a formula. And some Christians take it as a formula. Like if I actually have faith, just a little tiny bit, I can cause that mountain to move. Well, every one of us in here has a little bit of faith. Go try it and see if it works. Just Just move Malden Hill. It won't happen. So it's not a formula. It's not some, we can't, we can't read scripture so simply that it becomes ridiculous and our experiences demonstrate that it's ridiculous because nobody does that. So it has to mean something else and, and we have to go to a more profound or spiritual meaning and that is Jesus is simply challenging. 
challenging us to be people of greater faith. It's the same as if Jesus says, you know, if you don't, remember I preached in the Pharisee a couple weeks ago, if you don't hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, you cannot be my disciple. Well, it's hyperbole. It doesn't literally mean I now should hate everybody. But it's such extreme language that it's supposed to wake you up and challenge you as to whether or not Jesus is more important to you than anything else. So, yeah. Just one more question, then we'll take our, our break. Go ahead, Trev. Yeah. So I'll just say I had the exact same experience in planting this church. Exactly the same. In that it's hard for me to even describe, but it's almost like God gifted me a greater degree of faith than I ever had before. And frankly, I've probably ever had since at that point in time to just go do it. And I was like a hundred and you could say like a hundred and ten percent convinced. Now, I, I think that's just a, a gift that God gives you at certain points in time. And through a series of circumstances, he reveals uh, to us what he wants us to do. I'm probably a little bit careful using the word revelation because it's a loaded term. It, it sounds more like Bible to me. Uh, and I'm not trying to play word games, but I would just say I think God in, in my spiritual life revealed to me that this is what he wanted me to do. And it was through a variety of sources. I didn't hear like an audible voice. It was through a number of conversations. Like, you know, sometimes you're having a conversation with someone and it's a good conversation, but you don't really get anything out of it. And there's other time you have a conversation with someone and it's so spiritually loaded that you come out of that like deeply imprinted or impressed with something you got to do or change or respond to. It was a number of those kinds of encounters it was a piece. Um, in part, for me, it was opposition. And, you know, maybe God uses our personalities, but for me, if someone challenges me, I, I tend to push back. And because I was increasingly convinced and then received a lot of negative as well, you know, I'm reading the Bible about ministry's tough and, you know, you're going to have opposition, and it, it almost... Aff- in that situation, that opposition affirmed what I felt I needed to do. So I, I've had those kinds of encounters as well. Um, when I decided to ask Susie to marry me, I was scared to death because I came from a broken home. I didn't realize how scared I was until I actually went to propose. I actually, my knees actually buckled. I fell. <laughs> True story. It was the weirdest thing. I'm like, dear Susie, oh. and I had like this speech prepared, and it was just complete disaster, right? But I was absolutely convinced that I should ask her to marry me. 
but it, but it was a, what was that? <laughs> it was, it was embarrassing, but, um, there, I was through a number of circumstances. I was convinced that her and I were to be married, but it was, it was also something that I entered into, I think in a healthy way with like a great deal of thought and I guess healthy fear for lack of a better word. So God reveals things to us. I mean, he, we, we talk about calling. He calls people to ministry or calls us to serve or, uh, you know, calls us to missionaries or just calls us to stack chairs in the church. You know, there's a lot of ways in which God reveals things to us, imprints truth upon us, illumines our mind to um, opportunities and so forth and so on. And, and those those times of calling or conviction are often what seal the deal and really keep you in your saddle when times are tough, right? in ministry or in, in life or in marriage, whatever it might be. 